0: If you look at a map of the globe at night and you see all the countries and they're all lit up, center of Africa is pitch black. Yeah. Burundi's right in the center of that black. He wants to see that lit up like a little star. And very possible that we can do that.
1: This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Dowenhauer. Today we are talking about waste-to-energy technology, the process of taking the things we throw away and giving them a second life. And in some parts of the world, just one or two of these projects could change an entire nation. This program is heading into a new year, and as I'm planning more episodes, I've noticed that several topics focus on the idea of reducing waste and doing more with resources at our disposal. Waste-to-energy typifies that. The Department of Energy says that we could be converting as much as 77 million dry tons of waste per year. Add in feedstocks that come in gaseous form, like methane from landfills, and you get 2.3 2.3 quadrillion BTUs annually are what would be about 2% of our combined energy usage. There's a couple of ways to make energy from waste. For now, let's focus on the technologies our guest is using. For dry, hard waste, there's gasification or superheating materials so that it essentially breaks down chemically into hydrogen and carbon monoxide. If the waste is wet, like food, manure, and some yard waste, anaerobic digestion is a good way to break it down into useful combustible gas. Some waste can be converted into synthetic oil using a third process called pyrolysis. And finally, when the trash just won't cooperate, you can always burn it using the heat as an energy source in itself or to run a generator. Waste to energy has several advantages. First, of course, you're making energy, but you're also using a free feedstock. When the waste is burned or gasified, what's left up takes a fraction of the space it did earlier, and that reduces strain on landfills. As we've discussed in episode 8, waste in landfills left to do their thing will eventually decompose, creating methane and if it's not captured, in and of itself is a much more potent greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. The technology doesn't come without a few challenges. It's probably the only job in the world where you could find yourself in a frenzied search for pig But as our guest today will tell you, the potential to change lives with the resource that's lying around them is too big to ignore. Our guest today is Rob Redfern, CEO, President, and Senior Consultant of TerraStar Energy, a waste-to-energy project development company based in North Carolina. I met Rob through one of my oldest colleagues, Melita Elmore, who I knew back in my clean coal days. I've been looking for an interview for Waste to Energy for a while, and with Rob, I found a compelling story that went much further than burning trash for heat. Rob and his partners are developing several projects in sub-Saharan Africa, where power is sorely needed. He currently has two projects in Burundi, a small nation about the size of Massachusetts that borders the Congo. You probably didn't know much about Burundi. I didn't even know what continent it was on. Its history is typical of the region. European colony, independence, regional instability, struggles with democracy, and finally a semblance of stability in recent years. Rob and I discussed some of his adventures doing business in a remote part of the world, and it's probably not for everyone. The World Bank says Burundi is 164 out of 190 in its ease of doing business ranking, but it is 46 for starting a business which places it higher than the united states according to rob this small nation with 10 million people is eager for opportunities and only a lack of power stands in their way i hope you enjoy my conversation with rob redford We're here with Rob Redfern, CEO of Terrastar. And Rob, I love this topic. One of the aspects of environmentalism that I like is the notion of, I don't like to see waste. I think that's something that a lot of people can get behind. And that's where you guys come in. So tell us, what kinds of opportunities are we missing out on with waste energy? As you probably know, matter is
0: made up of energy. So if we can disintegrate matter, we can get the energy out of it. There are waste streams that are untapped right now. All the trash that goes to landfill, we could take that and convert it to energy agricultural waste, commercial waste, industrial waste, all of that can be taken in one way or another through one of our processes to get most of the energy out of it.
1: And you have a lot of processes. In fact, you have a concept that you call an energy island. What can we expect on this island if we were to visit it? Well, the energy island is a term one
0: of my friends coined and I liked it. The idea being that our energy plants would be relatively small. They could be in individual communities. And on that island, we would have one or more of our technologies which could sort through and process different kinds of waste to create energy. That energy could then be fed into the grid from a multiple of different points depending on the community and we can go from there.
1: Organic waste, that's your feedstock. It can be anything from discarded food mm-hmm. to plastics, right? How much energy can you get from these? And I'm especially interested in plastics because I don't think many people understand that. Yeah, plastics is, plastics
0: is an interesting thing. I used to be in the plastics industry years ago when I was in Canada, and we did a lot of manufacturing with plastic, and I was trying then to recycle it. The problem with plastic is that if you've mixed different kinds of plastics together, you cannot recycle them. That Unless you can keep it sorted, you can't really recycle it. So it always ends up in landfill, or as we know, it ends up in the oceans and drifting around in huge islands that we don't even know how big they are. That's scary. It right. is very scary. What we can do though is we can take that plastic, we can grind it up in mass, blend it with other municipal solid waste and wood product and shredded paper and so on. We create a little briquette, which we call a super energy pellet. There is a lot of energy in plastic most of it is derived from fossil fuels in the first place. And then we would put it into a gasifier that's broken down into predominantly hydrogen and methane. And then we take the hydrogen methane, run a generator, and turn it into electricity. What's left over at the end is pretty much pure carbon with some trace elements and trace chemical, which can be buried. Now the beauty of it is is that we've condensed it from, say, a ton down to about 100 pounds. So if it does go to landfill, first of all, it takes up a lot less space. And the other thing is, is that that carbon, if we'd incinerated it, would gone into the air, we're actually capturing all that through the gasification process and capturing the energy out of it without releasing any greenhouse gases or other pollutants.
1: And that's an interesting point about the greenhouse gases is because, look, you may be incinerating this waste, there may be CO2 produced, but if this stuff naturally decayed, you would have methane, which is insanely...
0: (laughs) It's terrible. Methane is uh, considered 21 times worse than CO2, uh, pound for pound. Methane is created by the anaerobic digestion so that bacteria are eating up the organics creating the methane the methane goes into the air in a landfill that's rampant and a lot of landfills now are are mining the gas off of it our proposal is let's skip that let's intercept that waste stream before it gets to landfill get the energy out of it and then put whatever's left into the landfill if in fact we have to some of the the waste that we're dealing with if it's food product or wood if it's fairly pure the carbon that's left over is just that it's carbon it's activated carbon actually has a good value to it. Filtration. It, yes, the, yeah, filtration. We filter. can actually activate it with nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium, NPK, and kind of boost its nutrient value and turn it into an organic fertilizer. So you're actually putting carbon back into the ground, boosted with the essential nutrients for crop production, which, you know, and the other aspect of what we're doing is, is creating fuel crops that could also be used into the gasification. Sort of.
1: One more technical question, gasification, it's often a challenging yeah. process. I just described at one time as Mr. Fusion from back to the future and in theory it's like that but in reality it's a lot more testy I think than it can be
0: it can be one of the things I've learned doing this is that there are a lot of suppliers of gasifiers out in the world and they can be as simple as a 50 gallon oil drum with a couple of things bolted onto it and that's a gasifier the technologies that we see emerging now and the ones that we're using are much more complex they're PC controlled you're controlling the gas that's coming in and going out you're controlling your flow of feedstock everything's temperature controlled it can be dangerous because you're operating at temperatures over a thousand degrees fahrenheit and you're creating hydrogen which is what was in the hindenburg Mm -hmm. so the potential for calamity could be quite high. But that's why we're very careful about how we do it and with whom we're associated and the training programs to run the plants once they're built. A lot of the lower cost systems out there create a dirty gas. And there's been a problem with that gas going directly into generators because it clogs up the engines. Our gas happens to be very, very
1: clean. But especially something like an organic waste that has so much variability in it. That's what I've heard is the big challenge a lot of times with gas fires let alone when you're using petroleum coke, which is pretty uniform, you're talking about (laughs) extremely variable feedstocks. Yes, and especially if you
0: start talking about MSW. So, you know, in any given minute, you could have a bunch of plastic go through or a bunch of paper or a bunch of dirt. You don't really know what's in that waste stream. Those waste streams are gonna be a little harder to predict your energy output. If it's a purer stream, like wood chips or farm waste, where it's all uniform, then you can budget for a little better.
1: How is your process better overall, I guess, with an energy balance than, say, a landfill gas operation? Okay. You probably get this a lot. I do.
0: And I've talked to a lot of landfill operators, and we've actually gone and quoted on a number of projects in the U.S. for converting municipal solid waste, MSW, to energy. The primary issue right now in the U.S. is a lot of landfills are nearing capacity. They're expensive to operate, they're expensive to maintain, and they go on in perpetuity. They have to be managed for for hundreds of years after they're capped, first of all, we'd eliminate a lot of that because there's not as much garbage going into the landfill. Even though they may be mining the methane coming out of the landfill, there's still a lot escaping. It just comes up through the ground. By the time we're done with it, there will be no organic decomposition. The methane simply just will not exist.
1: Are these processes energy intensive compared to the energy they produce? We hear a lot of this with ethanol production, right? Yeah. So what's the energy balance here? Our energy balance is great. Yeah, I've heard that argument on ethanol
0: and methanol. For gasification process, I know because I just ran some numbers on a recent project, around about 10% parasitic load. And that really is just to run conveyor belts and other apparatus required in the processing. Once the process is started, it's exothermic. So once in a gas fire or in a biomass boiler for that matter, once you get the process going, like lighting a match, it'll burn as long as you continue feeding it. If we put in a ton of garbage every hour, for instance, we will get about a megawatt of power every hour.
1: And I think the other point here is that it's essentially free feedstock. (laughs) Free or even, uh, you know, a lot of localities will pay us to take it. The project we were working
0: on in Georgia, they were transporting the waste from a transfer station to a landfill 70 or 80 miles away. They were incurring not only the cost of transport, but they were polluting the air with the diesel fumes being emitted as they were transporting this. We were going to take the 100 tons per day of MSW, sort it first, shred what's left, compress it into briquettes, and then and gasify it.
1: And all that is 10% parasitic load compared to the energy Correct. Yeah, okay. exactly. So
0: we were looking at around 4 megawatts worth of power produced each hour from our plant. After what was left over would be taken to that landfill. But it would require a lot fewer
1: truck loads because it's been reduced to
0: about 10% of its original volume and mass.
1: Do you ever anticipate any issues with disruptions of supply? And this is things like a facility that may run on poultry litter or pigs carcasses yeah. or use taco bell yeah. do you ever see issues with that yeah We do.
0: And that's actually one of the biggest problems with waste of energy. I discovered this the hard way. I got into this business about six years ago with the intention of using hog manure here in North Carolina to create electricity. Sounds real easy on the surface. Anaerobic digestion has been around forever and everybody understands how it works. The prices of anaerobic digesters have come down and we can do it probably affordably. The problem arose with collecting enough manure and getting contracts for the manure. When it comes to financing these things as you're listeners will understand is that we're looking at probably at least a 15 or 20 year amortization schedule on these things we need a 15 or 20 year contract for the feedstock our fuel and one it's more than one hog farmer it would be probably 20 or 30 hog farmers that means we've got to get 30 guys to sign up giving us their manure for 20 or 30 years and do it consistently do it consistently then there's all sorts of other ramifications what if they go out of business then then part of our feedstock goes away what if all of a sudden manure is worth a lot of money for some reason and they've signed a 20-year contract where they're getting nothing and now they want to get something for it. One of the things we look at using to mitigate that issue, municipal solid waste is a good thing to tackle because usually there's one signer. We don't have to have multiple contracts for waste. We get one community to sign us all their garbage that comes in. They're usually happy to sign a 20-year contract because that means they don't have to worry about it again. We can guarantee the power production. So if we tell them we're going to make four megawatts of power, they're guaranteed four megawatts of power agricultural waste is a little more difficult as you can understand and some commercial waste industrial waste the same issues kind of arise
1: yeah it's not just like a coal train coming through no and that's you know one of the reasons a gas pipeline exactly and that's one of the reasons why fossil
0: fuels have sort of led the way on energy is that it's readily accessible good-sized contracts everybody's making a lot of money on it the coal owners gas line companies the exxon mobiles of the world all make money on this they're more than happy to sign over contracts where if we're using wood products if we're using paper products or or other kinds of waste it's a little harder to put our finger on it one of the things that we can do, though, and reasons our technologies work pretty well, is we've driven our costs down quite substantially from a lot of our competition. And so our payback periods can be two, three, four years, not 20 years. So our amortization schedules are less, and our profitability is quite a bit higher. So it eliminates a lot of the risk to the potential lenders on these things.
1: And what are you doing to reduce your CapEx compared to other projects? What sets you apart from, there's other companies out there. A couple of things. First of all, I'm a general
0: contractor. I've been a general contractor for 30 years. So I know how to build things pretty quickly and pretty cheaply. Issue two is the suppliers that we've selected, a lot of them are in Asia. So just like Apple has their phones made in Asia, we have a lot of our parts and components made in Asia. And I've spent the last six or seven years identifying these suppliers. So we've got very good working relationships with them. Their products are very good and they're a lot less expensive than if we have them made in the U.S. Second of all, I anticipated the growth of this industry several years ago and we set out to create a modular system for all of it. Especially on the anaerobic digestion and gasification, we can make all our components in a factory 24-7. They're not built on site. And that also keeps the costs down. We've standardized our production and I keep saying we want to be the McDonald's of energy. Our plan is to have lots of small energy plants everywhere, modularized, where we know exactly how big to make them. We know what the fuel feedstocks are going to be. The design time has come way down. The engineering time has come way down, which reduces all our soft costs. So we go in and almost every one is almost like every other one.
1: You described three business arrangements for how to own and operate these plants. Customer-owned, Terrastar owns it, joint venture. Which of these three often makes the most sense? Surely one of them is more common than the other. No. So far, when
0: we started, (laughs) I thought we would sell the equipment. And the fact is, nobody wants to spend three or four or ten million dollars on something that they haven't test-driven. On the other end of the spectrum, I don't particularly want to run these things as a wholly-owned TerraStar operation. We're going to have dozens or hundreds, hopefully someday, of these power plants. And the idea of centralizing that management process is just too daunting a task. So the in-between thing is to do a joint venture. So we have local operators, local developers. And to that end, I get calls literally every day from people around the world saying, look, I want to get into the energy business. I want to get rid of this garbage that we have a problem with. I know the mayor of the such and such a town, and I think I can get this thing started. So I've been working with them and my people have been working with these guys and ladies to develop the projects. And it can take a year or two or more in some cases, but the payoffs are good. For them, they can obviously make some money at it. For us, it's good because the project is underway mostly using their shoe leather and at the end of the day we'll help them run the plant as a joint venture and we of course will have our share of that we can also bring the financing to bear so if they put together the project in such a way so we've got a good power purchase agreement at a good rate or if we're gonna sell the gas that's being produced or the heat and we have contracts for the feedstock and all the numbers work out we have a good internal rate of return then we can go and get the financing
1: we're here in your home so what does TerraStar the office look like I can imagine you have a very light Footprint yes, from it, what you're doing. My yeah.
0: office looks a lot like my car.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, well, you I, know what I'm saying is you don't have to have no. 100 people working to no, get these I've, projects up. I've,
0: I've I like I've. From the beginning i thought this could be a virtual company i've got maybe 40 or 50 people around the world karachi pakistan buenos aires i mean all over they all work from their kitchen tables as well for the most part we do have an office in burundi i have a shop here in town i work from my kitchen table i am finding however that i probably am going to have to have like a real office with a real locus of management. I'm so busy right now and I need so many people to get involved that having them all under one roof is going to be better, I think. Not everybody can work independently.
1: And the other thing that I've noticed, this sounds a lot like my experience working in the oil field where everything's kind of mobile. You don't lay much concrete down in those Mm -hmm. situations. But You're also setting up in the middle of nowhere with your example being your Burundi project. The other thing that can eat you alive on a project is the HR, having a lot of guys out there. And Mm so have you found ways to maybe make a little bit more automated? Correct.
0: Gasification plants really don't take that many people to run once they're up and running. We do need a crew there, but it's not a very large crew. In some of our projects in these developing nations, Burundi being one, Mexico, we've got several more around the world, the cost of labor is so inexpensive, we can actually throw lots of people on the project and reduce our capex accordingly and actually supply a lot of local jobs, which is one of our other mandates.
1: Well, it's almost the flip of the economics that would be it happening is. here. It is. an oddly a lot of these places
0: that are developing nations, their value what we get paid for electricity there is more than we would get paid for here in the U.S. Although we can make a dollar at it here, we can actually make a better dollar elsewhere and actually help a lot more people at the same time.
1: And then finally, we've teased it to death. Let's talk about this Burundi project. I feel embarrassed to say this, but I had to look on the map. or to Burundi Google is. it to learn where it was. I wasn't even sure. Yeah. I thought was like maybe it's in Asia. I can't. <laughs> I think what I was thinking was is Nigh, yes. but um. and
0: everybody asked that. I didn't know where it was either. I had to get the globe out and look at it. Burundi is a small little country right in the dead center of Africa. It's right beside Rwanda and across the lake from Congo. It is about 11 or 12 million people. I got a phone call one day last year from a fellow who was making a trip over to the U.S. from there. He wanted to know what I knew about gasification. And he had it in mind that he could use gasifiers to power a concrete plant plant that they have there in Burundi. The idea there is there are plentiful supplies of peat. We can excavate it there using local labor, dry it, and use it as our biomass for a gasifier. The total amount right now is 26 megawatts. The first phase is 6 megawatts. It will have a captive client, this concrete plant, which uses a lot of electricity, currently buys it from the local available 30 megs of power. Which
1: is run by?
0: A small percentage of it is hydro and the rest is diesel. Like in a Caribbean island. Because of their location and because of the political strife there over the last hundred years, especially the last dozen or 20, access to the diesel is sometimes intermittent. Plus the grid itself is not working well. They needed a reliable source of electricity. Second phase of the operation is to build a 20 megawatt Power plant in the capital city of Bujumbura and feed it right into the grid. We're placing that plant across the harbor from the existing power plant, which is all diesel. We'll roll it out two megawatts at a time as we're
1: in full twenty up. by.
0: It could be as soon as the end of two thousand eighteen. So oh, wow, yeah. yeah. So our time frames are way less than our competition, the fossil fuel plants would be. We're smaller, there's no question, but it's pretty big from Burundi's standpoint. We're doubling the nation's capacity, practically, in a year and a half.
1: We always talk about this. You always hear on The Economist, for instance, on this idea of ease of doing business and the infrastructure nightmares mm. that are there in Africa, mm. where you came even fly direct. What was doing business in Burundi like, working with the government, getting well, those purchase power agreements? It's, we're lucky the
0: company that owns the concrete plant is very well connected. Having been there now once, I can tell you the roads suck. The idea of transporting probably 50 containers. Worth of equipment across the continent and then onto those roads and getting it to where we have to get it is daunting.
1: You're doing it all in shipping containers, yes, space, yeah? Okay. Yep,
0: everything's coming in containers and then having our crews there to assemble it all, getting all the site work done. It's been interesting to say the least. I've been a general contractor, and if I run out of two by fours, I can run down the road and, and get <laughs> a load of two by fours. Can't do that in Burundi. No. We have to be really careful about making sure everything's in order long before we start construction. But I think we're gonna be good now I've told others I said man if we can build it there we can build it anywhere
1: you'd never came across any situations where you had to pay guards <laughs> not yet. checkpoint guys no not
0: yet Got to tell you though it was interesting going in and out of the airport I've never had an anti-aircraft gun pointed at my car before that. that's when you know you've made it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, think so. I think so we haven't had any issues like that yet no issues of having to pay off a policeman or a guard or anything like that it's a little unnerving when you're driving around around and there's army guys in the backs of jeeps and they're carrying their rifles and their semi-automatics and things like that it is a little scary to be honest with you I was nervous going over at first the State Department said if you're thinking of going don't go and if you're there you really should get out and here I am getting on a plane to go there it's really not that bad I think a lot of it's overblown
1: so they're just now getting to a point where they could invite something like this yeah I think so the
0: current president wants to make the people happy and how do you do do that well, let's give them something they need, which in this case is energy. Yeah, they're keen for us to do what we're doing. In Burundi, three out of a hundred people have access to electricity. Our grand plan there over the next 10 years or so is to introduce power plants all over that country and hopefully many others. One, we create jobs for the locals growing fuel crops and operating our plants, but we're also providing energy that they don't have right now.
1: Absolutely, well, we wish you all the best of luck. I'm gonna finish with the lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies first one is natural gas.
0: It's probably the best of all the fossil fuels. Crude oil. I think it's the worst of all the fossil fuels after coal, but it has a place because it has a good high energy density. Nuclear. As much as it sounds space age, I think it's antiquated. I think it's going the way of the dinosaur. It's too dangerous. Coal. Dirty for the most part, I think it's possible to make energy with it in a clean way, but I don't particularly like it. Wind. A great thing to use because it's always available and it can run 24-7 as long as the wind's blowing. Solar. I also like, problem being it only works eight or 10 hours a day. Biofuels. The natural way for everything to go, using naturally occurring or grown fuel sources.
1: Let's break that out to yours, waste-to-energy biofuels. For waste-to-energy in particular,
0: right now is the redheaded stepchild of (laughs) renewable energy. It's never mentioned. Solar and wind are always mentioned. Waste-to-energy, I think, is a natural. It's a 24-7 baseload power source, and I'm surprised during all the conversations, it isn't mentioned more. Fuel cells. I know we can use some of our gases that we produce to use them in a fuel cell to create energy. It's something we're looking into.
1: That's right. Hydroelectric.
0: Well, I came from near Niagara Falls, so I'm very familiar with it and know that it works. But I also know that there's a very high capital cost and a very long time frame for building it. And there's not that many places where it can be used. Geothermal. I can't see it being a bad thing. I like the concept. Electric vehicles. I think electric vehicles are past due. I was a Tesla fan when he first announced having an electric vehicle. I think it's the way to go, and I think it'll change all sorts of things.
1: And then finally, nuclear fusion. That's the holy grail there. I'd like to see it
0: happen. I think it's a long way off. Certainly won't be around in our lifetimes.
1: All right. Rob Redford, thank you so much for your time.
0: Thank you. It was a pleasure.
1: That was Rob Redfern, President and CEO of TerraStar Energy, a waste to energy project development company. So far, TerraStar has developed nearly 40 projects around the world since they began in 2011. Not bad. Special thanks again to Rob and Melita Elmore for making this happen. You can find more information on those projects and the technology behind them at energy-cast.com. Rob also sent me some cool pictures from his projects as well as visits to Africa, which you can find at Host Energy on Instagram. All guests are sent the raw and final recordings the week of release. So far, no complaints. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. I also want to thank you for joining us as we head into 2018. As I said, we have a number of great episodes planned for this year, and I've also made a New Year's resolution, which is to keep episodes rolling out consistently every two weeks. Trust me, we're not going anywhere. That wraps up episode 28. Be sure to join us next week when we explore how the increasing fleet of electric vehicles may be the battery storage we didn't know we had. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.